Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome back to With Friends Like These. We had a bit of a break. Perhaps you had a bit of a break, too. But there's something about having had a break from work that just reminds you of how real the struggle is. It feels like January is actually a really good time to be discussing burnout. I I just got back from a break and I'm already feeling it. Maybe you are too. Everyone experiences burnout. It's probably been with us since Eve got restless in the garden and there's been a particularly American aspect to burnout since Thoreau left the pencil factory to live in the woods. But my guest this week, BuzzFeed writer Anne Helen Peterson, she makes a compelling argument that the millennial generation is generation burnout, that there's something specific and troublesome about the form and pervasiveness that burnout takes among those raised in the shadow of the housing market collapse and in the middle of the forever war. We talk about that this week. There is much discussion of what she refers to as the C word, capitalism. And having named the enemy capitalism, we also discuss the ways that resistance to capitalism is a way out of burnout, a path that Anne wrote about in a different essay that I think also went viral, a piece telling the story of the Jubilee Baptist Church in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I admit, for a conversation that is almost entirely about burnout, I found our discussion fairly energizing. It is coming right up. Anne Helen Peterson, or as we just confirmed, Annie, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I am happy to have you. I've wanted to talk to you for a long time. Um, you often write things that seem, you know, ripped from the pages of my journal, almost <laughs> things that I've been thinking about. And you know what? Maybe that's the same uh, relationship to you that a lot of people have, because your articles tend to go kind of wild on the internet. And one in particular that got a lot of attention was your piece about millennial burnout. Yeah, that's almost a year old now, which is really weird to be thinking about because I was in the process of writing it a year ago, and I was so frazzled. I was moving and, you know, trying to do end-of-year stuff, which is just so stressful, and especially for women because a lot of the labor of planning this stuff falls on us. And I also had felt like I hadn't written anything good lately. Um, And then I was going to write it for end-of-year, And that didn't, you know, it wasn't coming together because it just kept getting bigger and bigger. (laughs) And then we were like, okay, we can publish this after the new year, which actually was probably perfect timing because it kind of coincided with people, you know, with the new year taking this, a step back from their lives and thinking about them. And setting impossible goals for themselves. That's the other thing that happens at the new year. People create goals for themselves that probably will induce burnout at some point. Yes. Or they look at the goals that they set the year before. They were like, well, that was a crapshoot. And I really thought that like, you know, it might do like a personal essay size traffic. And that was not what happened. (laughs) Obviously, it it really resonated with a lot of people. And maybe that's my problem with it. I mean, because it resonated with me and I'm not a millennial. And you you make some very good arguments in the piece about why burnout 
has a relationship to millennials or millennials have a relationship to burnout that's maybe different or more intense than other generations. And I think those things are true, if I remember correctly. Things like student yeah. debt, housing, yep. job market. And phones and stuff. Yeah, phones like and how stuff. That co- their, their arrival coincided with our coming of age. <laughs> phones and stuff, indeed. <laughs> but the thing I kept on thinking about besides like having my, I think, very typical Gen X, like, wow, that's not, that's not true, like pushback. Right. Um, what about this? What about that? We are very disagreeable. Um, <laughs> it's so real. It's true. That is the pushback I received. Um, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, keep going. And, you know, so I did kind of look back at my own history and also, you know, like kind of did some very, very casual looking back through um, some of the books that I have and whatnot. And, and of course, and I think you'll probably freely admit this, that burnout is a thing that's existed before millennials, obviously. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah like burnout <laughs> is capitalism, you know? <laughs> yes, that's my point. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the thing, I have two thoughts kind of coming out of that. One is that the experience of reading the essay helped me practice something that I think will be relevant to our entire conversation, which is trying to honor my own experience while still recognizing the severity of someone else's. Yeah. Which is hard. The thing that I always say is, like, there's no burnout Olympics. Yeah. Not a contest. And acknowledging someone else's burnout does not diminish your own. Exactly. So I got to practice that. Got to (laughs) kind of be like, okay, like my generation—I felt like I was speaking my generation. And then I I had a thought that I've had— quite often in the past three years, let's say, which is this phenomenon that you're writing about. And you, I think this is something you know, and which is this phenomenon that you're talking about is capitalism. Yeah. And the fact that lots of young white people are experiencing it just shows that our experience of like capitalism has gotten so severe that there is no insulation anymore right like if white bourgeois people who are well educated are feeling this like wow the economy is bad (laughs) (laughs) and not just the economy right Um, right the experience of having all these demands on you the experience of like constantly needing to improve constantly needing to prove yourself like that's something that you know black and brown people have talked about for decades yeah and have experienced like um i just remember there's i, I believe it may be apocryphal but the rosa parks about why she didn't refuse to move from the back of the bus was i'm tired mm-hmm. and there's a famous quote from a i believe a escaped enslaved person i'm sick and tired of being sick and tired mm-hmm. uh which is something not coincidentally, perhaps, is something that we say in the rooms of AA a lot. Yeah. And that was another thing that I thought, <laughs> which is I was, like, reading about all these young people who feel not enough, who feel so driven, who feel alienated from themselves. And I was like, wow, it's a whole generation of alcoholics. Mm-hmm. Well, and a lot of people are, you know, because of 
because things are so untenable in their daily lives, you know, they turn to things or to habits or addictions that make them seem very temporarily not that way. And I want to actually say, I don't mean alcoholic as I think everyone drinks. I actually mean yeah, yeah. more what you're, I think you gestured toward there, which is people who need something to get through the day. Yeah, I see. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And I don't think there was a, there would be a way to end that essay that would be both honest and completely optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, and like people... Some people are like, there's no solutions at the end of this essay. Yeah. And of course not. <laughs> I mean, my solution is like, mm, like radical overthrow of capitalism. <laughs> but I, I also didn't want to put like the C-bomb in the essay because it is so alienating to a lot of people. Just on kind of that first blush, it is all over the book that I just finished writing that is like the longer version of the essay. But... I do think that like one of the things that people feel about burnout solutions is that they try those things and then they fail at those as well. <laughs> and that just exacerbates your burnout even more. And actually, that brings me, I've been reading a book called Let Your Life Speak by uh, Parker Palmer. It's about vocation, like the spiritual call to vocation. Yeah. And he talks a lot about, I mean, it's about work, in other words, yeah. but kind of work with a capital W, <laughs> mm -hmm. the yep. work of our lives. Life's work, yeah. Life's work. And trying to integrate that with what one does for money, if you can, you know. Mm -hmm. And it's, a, it's part memoir, and he talks about getting burned out himself. I think it probably would have been in the 70s or 80s. Um, he's not a millennial, that's for sure. And he had he says something that I, as soon as I read it, I'm like, oh, I'm going to see what Anne Helen Peterson has to say about this. Burnout is a state of emptiness, to be sure, but it does not result from giving all that I have. It merely reveals the nothingness from which I was trying to give in the first place. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> but I, there's a hopeful, he means that, in a way that's not as bleak as kind of it sounds on first blush, which is that— No, no, no. Like, it's a very—I like I recognize the theology. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, like, there, there's only—like, when you think of yourself as filled up with, like, these gifts that you have to give and they, they are self-generative, then, of course, they're going to exhaust themselves. Right. You and, know? of course, we feel empty if we—and we don't feel empty if we are able to— fill ourselves up on a continual basis, right? right? Like that's actually how you, burnout isn't a question of doing less work. It is finding the right work. Yeah. Although I feel a little weird saying that because I feel like another thing in your, this is, I will say, kind of, I think something that is more markedly obvious in this generation than in mine, which is the idea that your work has to be fulfilling. Well, yeah. And this is, I mean, in the book, there's a chapter that's like, do what you love and you'll still work every day for the rest of your life. <laughs> <laughs> because there has been this rhetoric of like, you know, oh, our grandparents and great grandparents, like they just worked, you know, they labored, they toiled and they didn't have the privilege of being able to do something that felt fulfilling. But the thing about finding something that is fulfilling is that because you like doing it, you are all the more uh, 
likely susceptible to exploitation. Mm -hmm. So the number of people who have told me about how they have been exploited at their internships, at um, their low-paying nonprofit jobs, you know, all of these different things where, yes, you're doing work that's meaningful, but it runs you into the ground. So when I think about that that idea of, like, it doesn't matter how much you're working, it matters what work you're doing, I still think— that you have to have a healthy relationship to that work that you're doing. Otherwise, it will spread like melting butter or something all over every corner of your life. And then it it is the question of how much work you're doing. I think the C word is going to be sprinkled throughout our conversation. Good. I, um, I like it. <laughs> because what that makes me think of is that maybe the problem is getting paid for the work. That's what makes right. work a problem mm-hmm. is – what we are, what society deems as valuable, mm-hmm. it, and if that—that's what we have to do to to you know put food on the table or whatever, and that's how we think of work. And we are kind of not even allowed to think of like, what do I really want? Like, what is the thing that makes me feel fulfilled? Right? Like, I've been—I mean, clearly because I'm reading this book, like I've been thinking about this a lot, like. What is the thing I'm chasing when I look for a job? Is it, it's not the paycheck, although paychecks are nice. But what is the thing that I want? And I don't know if I have an answer to that question, by the way. Well, um, I think a lot of millennials would say what they want is to be successful at their job. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> so know? then I have the question for them, which what is, what does that feel like? And that feels like exhaustion. So you yeah. don't know that you're doing well at your job unless you're exhausted all the time. Yeah. See this. Um, so this like the gets- way that I've known that I've been doing well at my job is that like the number of people who say like, I don't know how you do it, <laughs> you know, like that, that is the marker of success. And I do think that there is no cultivation of desire or taste or um, pleasure outside of those those ideas of what work is this for a lot of millennials so mm-hmm. you know like my partner uh he grew up in a more standard millennial optimization uh mm-hmm. <laughs> tract than i did so he went to an exclusive private school as you know starting when he was in elementary school and any hobby that he had outside of school it was all organized around this is what will get you into the best college and that will get you into the best job etc cetera, etc cetera. you know this is very familiar um, I had less of that because I grew up in rural Idaho and there just weren't a lot of things mm-hmm. <laughs> that could be organized towards getting into college. And also because I am more on that, I'm an elder millennial, so on the very, the, the cusp. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he just, he like, is only now that we live in Montana, is he like figuring out what he likes? Isn't that wild? <laughs> Isn't that wild? <laughs> you know, he's like, he never had an, a chance to, to figure out, oh, this is what I like to actually do with my time. Which you can still do too much of. I, w- I want to endorse the idea that you can still get tired of doing something no matter how much it feels like a spiritual calling, right? Yes. Like, <laughs> yes. One has physical But, he, but if you just, like, if work has, can, you know, work, and I mean work, like, the work you get paid for and then also the work of getting into college, which, again, is what, like, a lot of students think of Mm -hmm. as their full-time job, Uh, if that cannibalizes the rest of your life, 
and then you get to the job and the job, like there's no outside of the job and the job ceases to work for you, then there's, you know, there's nothing there. And that is what I think is actually happening with the millennial generation is that we kept, you know, going towards that bronze ring or whatever of fulfillment that was supposed to be waiting on the other side of a good job. And then as we're coming of age in our 30s, you're like, wait a second. <laughs> you know, it's our late quarter life crisis. And it seems to me like, and this is my experience, even though I'm a Gen Xer, and I did have a, I experienced burnout in a very, you know, real way as an alcoholic by hitting mm -hmm. bottom. But it was yeah. related to a ton of the things that we're talking about. Like, in my entire life, I had been driven by either grades or success, you know, mm -hmm. and particular markers of success. In the journalism world, as you know, it's not always a paycheck. There yep. are, in fact, if it's a paycheck, you're probably, like, you're very lucky if you can count your success <laughs> as a paycheck in journalism. Yeah. And I never, ever felt like enough. Ever. Ever, ever, ever. It was never going to be enough, no matter how hard I worked, no matter how much I drank, no matter how many drugs I took. Like, it would just never be, and I had this enormous gift given to me of total and utter failure, hitting bottom and realizing yeah. that I was going to need to define myself in some other way. It would be very hard for an entire generation to hit bottom. Yeah, and I think most people don't hit that bottom. You know, I like that you— called it a gift, right, of hitting bottom. Because one of the things I think about contemporary burnout is that you don't burn all the way out. There isn't that experience of, like, flaring out and becoming catatonic. Because that's what I thought burnout was. And that's why I didn't recognize it. Mm -hmm. Because what I think happens to most of us is you reach that point of where you thought you couldn't go past, and then you just keep going. Because the to-do list just keeps going. And you don't ever re receive or feel that catharsis, either of finishing something or of hitting rock bottom. Well, we say in the rooms, you know, you, you can choose to never hit bottom if you keep digging, right? Yeah. And I do feel like on some level hitting bottom— I mean, it was a gift for me because I didn't plan it. <laughs> it was a physical reaction to the chemicals I was ingesting. But other people do decide to stop digging. And I just think that this generation doesn't know how to stop. Yep. And that is what makes it hard to give the, your essay a happy ending. Because <laughs> what yeah. does that even look like? Right. Well, yeah, and I think part of that is that, you know, the Protestant work ethic that is mapped onto our understanding of what work and success should look like is that if you just try harder, you'll get the things, right? Um, and it doesn't matter where you are located on this stratified class, race, gender hierarchy, that if you just put in the work, things will happen for you. Mm -hmm. And that is the idea that it was sold to us as, as children. It's like, if you work hard enough, then you will get into the right college. And if you work hard enough at college and take on this debt, whatever debt is necessary, then the next things will happen, mm -hmm. right? And that totally 
elides all of these other things that are working against that coming to fruition. I think in a weird way, this will get us to a place of talking about solutions because something that popped into my head while you were speaking about the despair, you know, the, your description of kind of like you, you, you just never get fulfilled, it never gets better, you keep working and it never gets better. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about the experience of marginalized people, you know, yeah. which I cannot fully identify with, obviously, but that people who have been marginalized by capitalism, by white supremacy, have also had to live with the idea that no matter how hard they personally work, things might not get better. Mm-hmm. And I think there are lessons to learn from that. And I think actually you found a place that's looking to that, which is this church. Yeah. And ju- the Jubilee Church. Yeah. Jubilee Baptist. And to me, when I was reading about it, it reminded me of two things. It reminded me of what I have read about and been told about African-American churches a lot of the same kind of values and resilience, the the um, the cultivation of resilience and recognition of structural inequality, and then it really did remind me of AA. So much really? reminded me of AA, and I want to talk about it more and contrast it perhaps with the other quasi solution you once wrote about the company that's trying to do something <laughs> about burnout. After we take this break. Here at With Friends Like These, we love Grove Collaborative. It is an online marketplace that delivers all-natural home, beauty, and personal care products right to your door. In the age of Amazon, I have to tell you, the small things that underscore how personal Grove is make me incredibly happy. You get emails from real people at Grove rather than just automated reminders that you ordered something. And the last time I ordered from Grove, there was a note on the box thanking me for ordering And what do I get from Grove, you may wonder? Well, Mrs. Myers is a popular brand in my household. Uh, She, I I presume there's a Mrs. Myers out there somewhere. Uh, It is the line that has a lot of really wonderful smelling things. And for the holiday season, they actually had a line of apple cider scented stuff. And I ordered a bunch of it. In fact, we might be smelling like apple cider in my house uh, long after the tree has been taken down. In fact, we took the tree down last week. Maybe as soon as I start talking about buying things, if you're like an environmentally conscious person, you are feeling a little resistance. Sometimes I do as well. One of my New Year's intentions is to not buy as much stuff. Grove is actually going to help you with that. They have something called a sustainable swap set that is the best and easiest way to get started reducing plastics in your home. There's bamboo reusable straws. There's reusable and washable sandwich bags. There's refillable hand soap dispensers, gel hand soap, and a walnut scrubber sponge set. They also have a set of cleaners that you can get that is a glass bottle and then a cleaning solution that you add just a few drops to, and then it's mostly water, which is what most cleaning solutions are anyway. And uh, that is what I use when I'm not using the apple cider scented stuff. And for a limited time, if you're interested in Grove Collaborative, you can get 
all of this free with your first purchase. That whole Sustainable Swap Set is fast and free shipping on your first order. Going sustainable has never been easier. Join me and over 2 million households who shop at Grove for their healthy, sustainable home essentials. Make your home more sustainable this year. Again, for a limited time only, if you go to grove.co, that's grove.co slash friends, you will get that free five-piece set, the sustainable swap set from Grove, and you can start using less plastic. And you'll get free shipping and a free 60-day VIP trial. Again, grove.co, grove.co slash friends to get this exclusive sustainable swap offer. Let's face it. Most New Year's resolutions are hard to keep. That is why I insist on New Year's intentions. But if you make a resolution, you make a resolution and you mean well, you want to get more exercise, you want to save money. I have a resolution or an intention that's somewhat easier to keep. You can stop going to the post office. You can use stamps.com instead. Wouldn't it be wonderful to take just one errand off of your list forever and just use stamps.com? You can do anything at stamps.com that you can do at the post office right from your computer. It gives you something the post office can't give you as well big discounts on postage. I am officially a small business these days, something I'm I'm still getting used to. So I do some mailing, some professional mailing, and I use stamps.com. Uh, I have merchandise that I need to send, and I have lots of different tax-related documents I need to send. It turns out when you're your own business, like I would say 50% of the correspondence that I have related to my business has to do with taxes. So stamps.com is good for that. When I do my taxes, I can Again, just not do the post office part of it, which is great. Stamps.com, again, brings all the services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your computer, whether you're a small office sending invoices, an online seller shipping out products, or a warehouse sending out thousands of packages a day. Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. Use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send it. Once your mail is ready, just hand it to the mail carrier or drop it in the mailbox. It is that simple. And with Stamps.com, you get $0.05 cents off every first-class stamp and 40% off priority mail. 40% off priority mail. If you are someone who has a small business, you will realize that's actually an incredible amount of savings. Give yourself a resolution you can keep. Stop going to the post office and go to Stamps.com instead. There's no risk. And with my promo code FRIENDS, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale no long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to stamps.com, click on the podcast microphone at the top of the page, and type in FRIENDS. That's stamps.com, promo code FRIENDS. Stamps.com, never go to the post office again. So paired in in a lovely way with your original essay is two other pieces. One appeared quite recently, one a couple months ago, about people trying to work on the burnout issue. You know, one of them is a church, Jubilee Church, and I I would like to spend I could spend a whole hour on that. But I I think maybe we should detour into the other quasi solution, uh, which was a company. Yeah. Tell us, how is how is a capitalist, you know, uh, entity supposed to solve the problems of capitalism? So this is a company that was responsible for the branding and the look of, like, most of the millennial products that 
people consume today. So whether that's sweet green or like Harry's razors, like anything with a cool look, they were the ones who bags came. Yes. (laughs) Like all that stuff. Right. Um, And they did that for a long time and really made a name there. And then they realized that they were burning out and you know, they read my article and they read a couple of other kind of burnout pieces, ideas, uh, Jenny O'Dell's How to Do Nothing, a couple others. And then they decided to remake themselves as a company that would create items, <laughs> you know, not cheap items, but would create items that you would buy, right? So they're still capitalist, but like that would encourage people to enjoy daily life. So their first, uh, their first product, the company's name is Pattern, and then they have all these little brands underneath them. The first brand is called Equal Parts, and it is a line of cookware, which sounds really, you know, ridiculous. And when I first heard about it, like they sent me an email, and I was like, "What? This is ridi- like the pro- their capitalism is the problem. Yeah. Like, how can these? Sorry. How can this company?" <laughs> Do like this is just so lame and also, you know, exploiting the idea of burnout as like something that millennials are dealing with to then sell more products that don't solve the problem. Right. And, I have to stop you because that's, I mean, so that <laughs> I have, I, <laughs> I can barely articulate my rage. Um, it's not rage exactly, it's frustration, which is. I don't, I just, I, my skepticism is just so high because I also, like a good Gen Xer, subscribe to The Baffler since day one. And oh, yeah. the most famous to me in my generation Baffler essay ever is Commodify Your Descent, which is mm-hmm. about what it sounds like. And I don't even need to explain further, probably. Like, in the, the idea is as soon as you commodify something that is supposed to forward dissent, you have denatured it. You've 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 made it part of the problem, you know, because because then it's presenting this thing as part of the solution, which is what capitalism does. Yeah. So it can no longer be part of the solution. So that's why, you know, punk punk rock people make their own clothes, right? Um so I, so I have to establish, like, my own incredulity in order to have you walk me through what sounds like, and I know from reading the article, you kind of got turned around. <laughs> well, well, let's just say that I'm not as dubious as I was before. <laughs> I don't know if I'm a convert. Like, I don't own any equal parts cookware. But I, I do recognize that we're not going to overthrow the system in this particular moment. Right. Mm-hmm. And so what happened is I was like, OK, I'll sit down with these guys and maybe I'll write like a hit piece on them, <laughs> like just lambasting it. You know, like they are the problem. That's yeah, sort of the piece I want to write. Yeah. OK. <laughs> <laughs> but then, you know, and so I agreed to sit down and, and we talked for two hours and like they had done the reading, you know, not just my piece, like Malcolm Harris's kids these days, like all of these other theoretical underpinnings of, and th- and done the thinking too of like why are we so exhausted, and you know what do we want to see in the world, and so if we're still gonna have capitalism, I kind of think of it like you would get this. It's kind of like conservatism. Like if we're still gonna have conservatives, 
Might as well have compassion. <laughs> Look where that got us. I know. So <laughs> I guess they're like the George W. Bush. <laughs> they're the George War W. Criminals. Bush of cookware. I kind of love that. That's actually, they're going no, to start a war. Honestly, though, like what they wanted to do is they're like, okay, so if we're going to be a company, and like there's a great quote in the piece where he's like, you know, I am not a philanthropist. I am not a, like a social organizer. Like I'm a goddamn marketer. <laughs> like that is what he's good at. And so he looked at what he was good at and was like, what can I do within that realm to change things? And so not only did they dramatically redefine what their company was and how their company would function in an anti-burnout way, they also were like, well, we can market these these pots and pans. <laughs> I'm gonna keep I'm gonna laugh every time. <laughs> in a way. But what they want to do is actually encourage people to just take joy in the process of cooking. So something that is not, you know, they don't like they do not want Instagrams of like your finished product. You know, like they don't, um, it's not a meal service like Blue Apron where it's like trying to optimize your cooking process. It's just, what if you cooked and just kind of enjoyed it? And so part of the thing, and this again, this is going to make you laugh, is that there is a texting service. So when you don't know what you want to make because (laughs) you're a millennial who works all the time, right? You text and you're like, uh here is what I kind of feel like and here's what I have in my my fridge. And all of these like boomer ladies <laughs> who are on the other's end of this this texting service, they they walk you through how to make something. And it's not about, a, they, you know, they don't give you a recipe. It's more like actually teaching you how to spontaneously cook, which, you know, for people who like to cook, like it is an incredible joy. And it always takes my mind off of whatever I'm doing. You know, they've commodified um, so, having mom tell you how to cook. Yeah. Like that's how, I mean, because the thing you're describing <laughs> is that, but a lot of people have toxic relationships with that's their true, moms true, or they true. don't, or their mom's not in the that's, picture. That's true. And we you know nuclear families fall apart and moms yeah. also not always cooks, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Ugh. I mean, or, or, and this is tr- like people who do have functioning relationships with their moms asking for advice on something like that brings forth like a bunch of issues that maybe you don't want to deal with when you're exhausted at the end of your day. That's true. And I don't complain about therapists commodifying like, you know, support systems. So maybe I shouldn't complain about (laughs) (laughs) Or like my, I don't know, my hairdresser like gives me hair advice instead of my mom. (laughs) Mm, I can, yes, that's a service you're paying for. (laughs) Um, So, okay, my cynicism is very established, but I also... I recognize this, their sincerity, and sincerity yeah. does count for something. And I also it recognize, does. yes, we do have to live in this system. We are soaking in it. And what is left for us is to make the best choices we can in the system that exists. Yeah. Um, sometimes that means throwing a shoe into the gears. And that actually brings us, I think, to the other point of view about how we might do something about burnout, which is— the theology of the Jubilee Church. And where, what's the, what town are they in in North Carolina? They're in Chapel Hill. In Chapel Hill. Um, which like serves the, what's known as the Triangle. So Chapel Hill, Raleigh, and Durham. Right. 
So it was sort of a traditional-ish Baptist church that dwindled mm-hmm. down to 12 members. Yeah. And then one pastor had what I think I can truly call a radical idea. Radical in the most old-fashioned sense of the word. Yeah, they wanted to basically let the church die and then let a new one be born in its place. And that new church would focus on debt forgiveness specifically and liberation from oppression broadly. And I think a lot of churches might say that they are focused on liberation from oppression, but not actually focus on what that means in one's daily life. And they talk about not being afraid of using the C word. You open with a scene of the church members reading Karl Marx. Yeah. (laughs) So when most churches around the country are having Wednesday night Bible study, you know, in like the side room, it's all like dusty and has the old Bibles in it and that sort of thing. Like, and that's what this looks like because it is an old church. You go into this one and they're sitting around the table and they're reading Karl Marx. Who had some things to say about burnout, by the way. He does. Well, and also about Christians. Yes, that's true, too. <laughs> Which they laugh, you know, they they find, they know that that is incredibly ironic. Right. <laughs> but the stuff about burnout and the stuff about the way the system works, like, that's what they're reading it for. And they're yes. really thinking about the structures of oppression. And one of the main ones being money and debt. Yeah, you know, one of the pastors, John Thornton, he talks a lot about how what capitalism does is makes us treat each other like shit. (laughs) And so the way to not be that way, which is, you know, like God doesn't want us to treat each other like shit. So the way to resist that is to also resist capitalism. And to come around to millennials, like what is one of the signifying traits of millennial burnout? Student debt. Yeah. And I remember being introduced to the idea of the way that debt chained us to capitalism in college when I had a friend who was who wanted to do social work after college and was like, I can't. I can't. This is mm-hmm. how they trick you. And she, I think she actually said something like, this is how they trick you. You know, they set you up to want to do good things with your good education. And then you can't. Yeah, well, there's like a secondary piece that I published alongside this one on the church where I talked to 12 people about how they got out of debt. And one of the women talks about how exactly what you're saying is that what debt does is it makes you so bound to the system as it is that you are not free to produce radical change, you know, to advocate, to to rebel, to, to change the system in any sort of way. I've actually said before on this show that the way that we would fix journalism in the United States is with universal basic income. (laughs) Yes. That right now it works, you know, journalism, you know, you and I do fine and I, I would never impugn our work or the work of our friends or whatever. But the way that it works, it does support the system as it is. It does support capitalism in a very neoliberal kind of way, in part because we can't think outside of it. Because we have to earn a living. And the structures of, of journalism as it is today are all about clicks and uh, shortness and viralness. And 
if you if you have to think in that framework, of course you're going to cover politics like a horse race. Of course you're going to cover what to buy, right? Like, yeah. What I mean, the way that debt it is. I mean, I think anyone listening could probably relate this to their own industry. Like any industry that's dysfunctional, it's probably dysfunctional in part because you can't think outside of it because of the structure that you have to live in. Well, and I think, you know, the pastors would say this absolutely about the church, is that most churches are so bound right now by scarcity. So if you're a pastor in a church, everyone is freaked out because no one's going to church, right? Or falling numbers of people are going to church, incredibly fewer people. And then at the same time, the people who are at the church and the people who are tithing and supporting the church and and paying your salary— they are very, very scared of the church changing in any way. So you are tied to this vision of what the church is, that obviously the church is dying, but also you can't change it, you know? And that's what each of those pastors experienced in different ways. There's three of them before they came and started Jubilee. And there's a great quote you got from from one of them, which had to do with the the. the thinking about the megachurch and the crisis of people not going to church, that all these different churches are thinking about how to get someone to come to my church, whereas the question they should be asking is, why would anyone want to go to any church? Exactly. I loved that. That, <laughs> I know. That, and it reminds me again of an AA principle, which is the, the it's a pro, why some people might get mad at me for talking about it, which is it's a program of attraction, not promotion. Yeah, which is that we, in order, you should just, you should want to be a part of our society. Like, we can't make you. We don't want to make you. It needs to be Yeah, if you make the person, then like, that's like when you force a kid to go to church, Mm -hmm. right? Like, that's, (laughs) or like my my dad forcing me to hike. Like, (laughs) no way. I'll only go hiking if you you give me an outfit, right? And it took me a long time to come around on hiking. Uh, (laughs) But... But yes, like if you force it, you know, or or even the idea that like this is kind of a, a secondary step, but some Christians believe that really interrogating and analyzing the gospel, that that is a sign of, you know, a lack of faith mm-hmm. instead of you have to have that sort of engagement with it. Like you have to decide that it is what you believe. You have to come to that point. Otherwise, is it faith at all? Yeah, doubt is, is an is integral to faith. You yeah. cannot have faith without doubt. And I want to bring it back to capitalism and commodification again because those churches turned themselves and those churches that are trying to promote themselves have turned themselves into commodities. So, of course, they can't mm-hmm. be revolutionary. Of course, they can't preach what I would personally consider the true gospel um, because they, they're, they're bound and they've made themselves a part of the structure. And this church— is very much about attraction, not promotion. And in, right down to the fact, they have there is a thing about them that some people might think of as a promotional idea, which is that they pay off church members' debts. But that's not even how that works. Do you want to talk about how that how the paying off of debts within their congregation works? So there's three different ways. And well, first, as a little bit of backstory, because how would a church, this church that was down to 12 members, have any money to pay off anyone's debt? Right. And the answer is that in the 90s, amongst evangelical churches across the nation, 
it was very cool <laughs> to build a church or to build a like rec center. And then the idea was that then the youth would come. Right. <laughs> and, you know, in some cases, yes, it did attract families and younger people, but um, it was by no means a fail-safe. But so this church thought, okay, we'll raise money and maybe we'll build a rec center. And they raised all of this money. And then every year, as the numbers continued to go down, the the leadership of the church voted against building it because it increasingly seemed like a bad bet. And so by the time they had gone down to this num- 12 active members, they still had $600,000 in the bank. And so that is what they used. You know, they used a little bit of it to relaunch the church and to take on, you know, now they are supporting these three pastors. And then they're using the rest of it as part of this debt forgiveness program. So the major way that they do it is for people who are part of the church, you know, and no one has applied for it on their own. You know, See, like that's each the part of the that I have... wanted to get right too, which is that it seems yeah. like it's a joint. It's like a get get buy one get one free thing. You know, <laughs> like <laughs> no, they have to like right. they have to harass people to apply for. I it. I know. See, that's They're what's like... amazing. That's what's amazing <laughs> is it seems like yes. something you do to get people in the doors, right? But instead, people don't want it. People don't want this gift. Well, because they're ashamed. Right. And they also think, and this kind of goes back to something we were talking about earlier about burnout, they think someone else, is, someone else deserves it more than they do. Which, by the way, is on some level undoubtedly true. Yes. But they have to start somewhere. That's what John says. Well, also grace. I mean, because that's the thing with, I mean, we don't, we don't deserve anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or we deserve everything. There's a two ways to look at it. Either we are completely yeah. unworthy and we don't deserve anything, or we've been just been given this gift and you don't have to think about whether you deserve it or not. It's well, and the other thing they do that is really important is that you don't have to be a member of the church. That's to, so amazing. To get this. So they also, within the community, they have this goal of liberating two to four people from poverty every year. So right now, they are paying the the rent and the groceries and I think one other bill of a woman who is a mother of four in, in the community, who's not a member of the church, who is referred to the church by a member of the church, but like, she's not, she doesn't go to services. And as the pastors say, like, she doesn't owe us anything. Um. And what they're just trying to do is get her onto that solid footing so that she can stand without others, you know? Um, And to me, that was, you know, this is always a complicated thing with evangelicism or with missionary work, all this sort of stuff like, oh, you only get this service if you also believe what we believe. Which uh, you always have to hand it to. There are some Catholic orders that don't do that, which I always really appreciate about about, yes. about those those Catholics. <laughs> Not to single too many people out, but um, yeah, it's amazing. And it is, and there's another line in the piece where they do help some church members too, right? They have a program, these for outside the church, and then there are people inside the church who they help with. And it is a, he- yeah. sounds like it and is I, very- I can't much- tell you how amazing it is. So they do it once a month. Yeah. And the people stand at the front of the church, which is kind of, you know, I think hard, but also they want this to be public and also to, like, not have it be a shameful thing. And they don't, like, say the number of the dead or anything like that, but they have 
what's called the litany of Jubilee, where they're like, God wants us to pay off each other's debts. Like God wants us to be free. So you do this, you know, we forgive your debts, your debts are forgiven. And then the people whose debts were forgiven, they serve communion for that week. We deserve to know what we're putting in our bodies and why. That's why Ritual's founder is on a mission to reinvent the vitamin industry. Kat Schreider and her team of scientists at Ritual are making clinically tested the new normal. Not only have they obsessively researched each nutrient in their visionary women's multivitamin, carefully choosing forms that are absorbable by the body, they've also tested their formula. Science-backed isn't a buzzword, it's the standard. Ritual has left out mystery additives, synthetic fillers, and shady extras that can be found in some traditional vitamins, and they're committed to showing you their nutrients and where they came from and why they chose it. It's traceability. I have talked at length about Ritual. They're a longtime sponsor. I love the way that their vitamins look, which is a weird thing to like about vitamins, but it does make you want to take them more if they look cool. It also starts your day out a little more pleasantly. Uh, They have a minty tab in each container, so you get that little minty fresh scent the first thing in the morning. I find that pleasant. And also, you do get to know exactly where all these things come from. They are committed to traceability, to transparency. It's not just the vitamins themselves that are transparent. For obsessive label readers, Ritual uses vegan-certified, non-GMO, gluten-free, allergen-free ingredients, and their sources are out there for the whole world to see because they believe you deserve to know what you're putting in your body and why. And Ritual is designed to be gentle on an empty stomach. There's that minty tab and just the design itself. You can take it on an empty stomach. I do all the time. You do not get queasy afterwards. Daily changes can lead to big results. Start small. Ritual is offering my listeners 10% off the first three months of their subscription. Try it out. Your satisfaction is guaranteed. Go to ritual.com slash friends to start your ritual today. That's 10% off your first three months at ritual.com slash friends. I feel like what I see here, what I feel here about the Jubilees, church's mission, if you compare it to the cookware company, which may be unfair, (laughs) is they're not actually head-on addressing the problem of burnout, are they? They they have actually thought much bigger than that. They have addressed a spiritual crisis, not feeling tired which is what that feeling tired is a sign of. They have actually gone, it feels like to me, to much more of a root cause. Yeah, and especially since they, like, they understand that structures have to change. Because I was also thinking about a, a piece that was written in response to your essay about Black burnout. And there's a really great line in that piece where the author quotes our therapist as saying, burnout is a sign from your body that you're human. Mm -hmm. And I kept thinking about that as I read through the, the piece about the Jubilee Church, because what if it is true that burnout is a symptom and not a problem, right? And it's not even necessarily a bad thing. It is like a, it is bottom. You can make it your bottom. You can decide 
something has to change, and maybe it's the structure and not just how I feel. Yeah. <laughs> and how different, How no, but like how different does it feel when you you hit that bottom or you— or you're doing it with other people, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a line, too, in the Jubilee piece where, like, one of the pastors says that he used to go to, like, Wednesday dinner with the people from his church. And then he'd go down the street and have, like, good food with his actual friends. Mm-hmm. And how different that is at this church. And it's not just that the people at the church are younger. It's that, like, these are people who are actually thinking and talking and and supporting one another as a community in a way that's pretty, you know, radical and different. And that, like, if I—to experience burnout with that group around me feels so different than the way so many of us experience burnout, which is as a profoundly isolating and solitary experience. And that brings—I can't, again, cannot help. Like, it brings me to another idea that I take out of the 12-step rooms, which is there's a saying in the big book, which is that when you're in crisis, throw yourself all the harder into helping others. Mm-hmm. That that is how you heal yourself spiritually. That while self-care is important, yes, you know, even like going to meetings, if you're, that's, the program is important. Like the way that you get better, the way that you feel connected to the universe, which is, again, burnout is a sign that you're not connecting. Burnout is a sign that you, not only are you empty, but that you're not receiving either. Yeah. So you're you're giving all of yourself to different things that maybe aren't also giving you things aren't refilling you in any way. Exactly. Exactly. So if you can muster the energy or the courage or whatever, which again, it's hard and not everyone can and sometimes you need a lot of people around you in order to even help someone else. It's easier to help someone else if you have a lot of people helping you. Which is that what this mm-hmm. church seems to have bought into in not just I don't want to use that metaphor that's a bad metaphor for the situation. <laughs> <laughs> It's what that church definitely lives. Well, and they said, you know, like they, one of the things they said is like a year from now, what will it feel like in our community when it's not just, you know, these first four people whose debt has been forgiven. It's a dozen people. It's two dozen people. And then the other thing that they're doing too is they have groups where they kind of do like a Ron Robin of paying off each other's debts. So, like, you pay off the person who has the highest interest, like, all the money goes towards that person's debt first. And then everyone else, you then direct it towards the second highest interest. Does that make sense? It makes total sense, and that's how we should run the country, but okay. (laughs) And so how will that bond not only, like, that group of four people, but also bond the entire community together? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. You know, like, that is the Lord's Prayer. (laughs) It is. And— it reminds me because when you said uh, they were asking themselves what this church is going to look like in a year, there's a also a very wonderfully self-aware um, section in the piece where they talk about how their church is basically all white. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we can giggle about that a little bit. It's not that surprising. But I think it's all white because we – to get back to the first half of our conversation, white people are who need, are, are figuring out this is what they need now. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's also, I mean, there's all sorts of historical reasons for segregation in, in oh, yeah. congregations, especially in the South. Uh, and the piece, you know, 
one thing that makes the piece what it is and what makes this church what it is is that they have all gone to, you know, Duke Divinity and they have like very sophisticated, learned ideas of what church could possibly be. But so one of the pastoral interns is a black woman who is currently at Duke Divinity and she is taking a class on segregated Sundays and her teacher says like, the segregated church is an abomination. You know, God's kingdom is not segregated, and so the church should not be either. And I think that a lot of people in the progressive and, like, anti-racist movement are really trying to think through, you know, how can we move towards anti-segregation of of the church space while also recognizing, as another one of the pastors says in the piece, like, how much— energy and, and harm it takes sometimes to be around well-meaning white people, you know? Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, there's a lot of energy. Well, <laughs> and maybe you don't want to do that on your, like— And also, like, maybe your yeah. church is already kind of offering the spiritual solutions that this church is. That's the point I was kind of trying mm-hmm. to make about it's a lot of white people, is, like, yeah. they're in their very pointy-headed way figuring this out in in a direction that maybe other populations have had to gravitate to because they had no other choice. Because I was going to bring this back around to the despair of burnout and despair and hopelessness of feeling like you can't give anymore. And, and even if you could, it wouldn't be enough. You cannot live there. Like, it is literally impossible. Mm-hmm. And people throughout the ages, have had to figure out how to find hope. And I think we, we privileged people have been able to—we we haven't ever—we you know, haven't hit bottom in this collective way that we're talking about now, mm-hmm. you know. And it's, it's taken the Trump administration. It's taken the student loan crisis. It's taken the proliferation of the alienating technology of iPhones, right, for everyone to start to feel the cruelties of late capitalism. Yeah, it reminds me of, you know, how when people, white people on Twitter say, like, this isn't America (laughs) about some, (laughs) you know, the latest thing that has happened in the Trump administration. And people of color on Twitter are like, this has been America. Now, before we say goodbye, I want to talk about one last thing, which is you, and maybe me, but you. No. (laughs) I know, because we communicated a little bit during the process, that this church, going to this church, had a very profound effect on you. Yeah. Uh, You know, I haven't said it in this podcast, but so I grew up Presbyterian with an evangelical twist, which was, you know, kind of the popular way of being in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, And then I left the church around college for various reasons, but a lot of it had to do with, like, that feeling of moralism and manipulation that a lot of ex-evangelicals have experienced. But, you know, like, the church raised me. Like, there's so many things about church that I find powerful and— magical and like it feels like a you know there's a it's a holy space like there's just a different feeling for me and I know that for a lot of people church spaces feel 
damaging Mm -hmm. and traumatic um, and alienating. And a lot of those people actually are people who have found a home at Jubilee. So there are, you know, agnostics at the church. There are people who are non-binary and who have been kicked out of their church communities. Um, And there are people who are just, who have not felt at home in a church for a long time. And, you know, I still like would not consider myself a Christian, but this is a church that I would want to go to if I, you know, if there were one here, if there, if I were in proximity to one, just because, you know, my, (laughs) after writing the millennial piece and just thinking about burnout so much, like the idea, my cure for burnout is trying to care genuinely about other people, even if they're not like me and even if their experience isn't mine. And I think that this church is a conduit for that. And that is the sort of energy I want to be around. And so it was just, you know, (laughs) it's great to have a positive experience with something that you have felt negatively about for a long time. So when did you cry? Oh, I mean, (laughs) a little bit during the doxology. (laughs) I mean, because that's the thing, too, about this church is it's not a cool church. There's not a light show. There's not YouTube videos. Like, it is not flashy. It has those parts of the old, you know, mainline Protestant experience. And so while it harkened back to that, you know, that— that I feel nostalgic for that. It feels like home. And then it also had all these new elements. Like, you know, when you walk in the door, there's buttons for pronoun preference. And the pastor, you know, when he introduces himself, he says, like, I'm Kevin and my pronouns are he, him, his. Like, that feels incredible. And then the debt liberation experience and the communion, like, I took communion. That's meaningful. Oh, that actually made me tear up a bit. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I'm trying to put my finger on why. Yeah, what, why did you cry? Yeah, what, what is making you cry? Besides right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, I think right now it was hearing that you had a connection. Yeah. that Because commu- communion, I feel like I'm going to, you know, I'm probably going to put a contact warning on this whole episode because I do always like to acknowledge that Christianity is very, has had, a, caused a lot of trauma. Um, for yeah. some people, and I get that. And also I get that there's a flavor of Christianity that's very exclusionary to every other religion. I personally don't feel that way, whatever. But to get back to communion, it's a miracle. Mm-hmm. You know? Like, even if you don't believe in the literal transubstantiation of it, it's partaking in a miracle. It's partaking in a physical representation of this enormous gift. And for you to have done that and felt a connection strong enough to do that, that just, it makes me very hopeful, honestly. Well, and the cool thing, you know, like the people giving communion, I had spent several hours with them earlier that week. You know, they were the people who their debt was being forgiven. And I got a chance, like they gave me the privilege of, of knowing the intimate details of their story and how they got into debt. And then to watch that debt just be wiped away, you know, like that is what the church, it's not a gift. Like it's just what we should be doing for one another. That's how they view it. And then 
to share in that, to be invited to share in that as part of communion. Like, again, <laughs> you know, it's hard even as an objective journalist to not feel part of that. And I think it's important to point out when you said it's not a gift. It is a gift, but it's a gift mm-hmm. to those who who do the forgiving. Yes, that's exactly it. And that's a wonderful part in the ceremony that you described, where the the, yeah. the congregation asked, "Will you allow us to give you this gift of forget of debt mm-hmm. forgiveness?" I love that. I think that might be in one of the places that I cried. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and then also, to me, as someone who writes pieces for national consumption, it just feels so important to show that so much Christianity is hurtful and exclusionary and moralizing. But there is this other form of Christianity, which is inclusive and inviting and radical. I think the stuff that got to me, the the thread— that runs through the stuff that got to me is connection. Mm-hmm. Because I, we've been talking around it and sometimes directly about it this entire conversation, which is at the root of burnout is hopelessness and loneliness. Mm-hmm. And that that is the disease that we have. That is the disease that white people have finally caught to the degree <laughs> that everyone else <laughs> has, That that sense that we can't be enough. There's, And that is utterly lonely, in case people don't realize. That is an utterly lonely feeling, mm-hmm. the not-enoughness. It is, it is through connections that, with others that we can actually not— I feel like it isn't even that you learn that you're enough. You learn that that question is stupid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> right, that, like, you are already enough in all ways, right? Yeah. That there's no, there's not even yeah. a measure. There's not even, like, you don't, there's no measure for enoughness. It just right. is. Well, and, like, the, the whole idea, like, you are God's creation already, so you are perfect. You are enough. Yeah. 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 And, the, yeah. and why turn your back on that gift? <sighs> <laughs> no, I, so I, you know, I know that the piece makes me emotional, but I've been honestly surprised by how emotional people have found it, like just watching the reaction on Twitter and that sort of thing. Or even like, you know, this person saw the article on Twitter, responded to the pat one of the pastors and was like, I'm a Muslim. I live down the street. Can I come by? And they were like, yes, please come to our church. You know, like that sort of thing. Well, it does Because it confirms what I already had felt about the church as well. It does sort of sound a little bit um, like it's not a very good "Quote unquote Christian church" in some ways because they probably don't oh, yeah. care. I mean, they were kicked out of like, <laughs> like one thing we haven't talked about is that they're Baptists because they say they're Baptists, and if you say you're Baptist, you can be Baptist. But they were quietly kicked out of the <laughs> local Baptist association, and they're not doing sales, which is so important for most traditional churches, right? Yeah, and I mean, they're not doing conversions. They're yeah, they're not trying to you know up the, up the inventory. Like, but in some ways, they're doing a whole lot more conversions by not doing sales. You know right. what I mean? A, pro- <laughs> a program of attraction, not promotion. That's that's. Yeah. I wish the world worked that way. <sighs> yeah, well, maybe what? Maybe maybe we're inching towards that. Thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation. I did not expect to cry during the conversation. Um, <laughs> No, I welled up a little too. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, well, it's we're all missing something. And when you get a taste of like what it might mean to not miss, right? To to not feel lonely. Like, you know, that's gonna it's uh, well yeah, it'll just remind you. It's good. They're good tears. Yeah. And it's, you know, when you can see it clearly, when you can give it a name, to me, that's always powerful, even if you don't have a solution yet. Seems like a good place to say goodbye. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. That is it for the show. Anne has something of a, you know, series of burnout pieces going for BuzzFeed, and we will link to those in the show notes. You will not be surprised to hear she's also working on a book. I was going to say something about how I wish my burnout was half as productive as hers is, but I think you may have picked this up from the show. Comparison is corrosive and is one of the things that leads to burnout. So I won't compare myself to her. You don't compare yourself to other people. You are fine right where you are. We are all doing the best we can. And until next week, please take care of yourselves. Hold up. 